Welcome to episode 263 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Jessica Carr. Andrew Swafford. And in today's episode, we're doing first day reactions from TIFF 2019. Uh, we are also talking with Patricia White in part two, talking 1977's news from home. So, two good stuff for this episode. Um, I guess we'll get started with TIFF reactions. We are here... Yeah, and our lovely Airbnb in West York. <laughs> our lovely canoe painting behind us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do a lot of people get to enjoy that. Yeah, that's art right there. How are we going to structure this since you saw four and, and we both saw one? I guess I'll just go with mine. Okay. It flows kind of into a, into an overlap, so. Okay, so chronologically, I guess. Yeah, we'll just do that. So I kicked off my morning yesterday at 9 a.m. with a two- and a half hour plus Nazi epic by Terrence Malick. It's two fifty. Yeah, it's a it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of Malick for nine a.m. Yeah. I had coffee, um, so which we don't. We don't. Right I have coffee. There's a long story as for why that is. We won't get into it. Not really. The coffee maker is just broken. So. And then the coffee store wasn't open. So yeah. The end. <laughs> There's a longer version of that story. Go ahead. Did she just not go? Well, the longer version is <laughs> we had to send Jessica to get coffee because she was the only person last night who had time to shower. Yeah. And then I tried to make coffee while she was. No, that's not how that worked. I sent her to make coffee because I tried to make coffee and the coffee machine started leaking. Yeah. Um, and there was only enough for one person to have a cup. Uh-huh. And Jessica has it. These cups are small. There was enough for two. <laughs> I also put cream in my so coffee. Long. So did she just not go to the store? I she went to the store. I, I legitimately like, walked all the way over yeah. there and looked at the clothes sign and looked at the clothes sign. <laughs> so uh, it was bad. Okay, whatever. I was just curious. It, it seems like a move that she just might not go and be like, I'm not doing it. Anyway. Well, I definitely walked all the way there. So you're welcome. <laughs> So, uh, A Hidden Life, which is the new Terrence Malick movie, um, it's, it's about a conscientious objector uh, during World War II. Uh, the first, I guess, hour and a half to two hours or so, so of it is uh, kind of showing his life as well as the gradual rise of the Nazis' uh, influence in Austria. This is post their uh, invasion of Austria. Um, and then the last half of it is him in jail for not uh, signing an allegiance to Hitler, which is what you're ordered to do whenever you uh, join the army or just be a citizen in Nazi Germany. And uh, so he spends time in prison uh, yeah, because of that. Um, I'm not a giant Malik person. I kind of got tired with a lot of his posts. Tree of Life stuff. Well, you also didn't like Tree of Life all that much. I remember that was a big sticking point early in the podcast was that I was a big Tree of Life fan. You thought it was like, eh. I like Tree of Life well enough. It's, okay. it's a lot. It's a hell of a lot better than like, yeah. than like a lot of the... Like, song to stuff. song, bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I like Badlands. I like Days of Heaven. I like... Uh, the ones, the ones that I've seen for the most part, I, I like outside yeah. of this more recent stuff when you yeah. just kind of went somewhere. Um, this one though, I was I really really enjoyed, even though it was nine a.m. in the morning, there were a lot of Nazis. Um, 
On screen. On screen. Not, not in the theater. No. Well. Uh, um, no, I really, because I think uh, with a lot of um, movies that contain Nazis, uh, it likes to focus on just the um, kind of base, basic evil of the Nazis and just kind of show the figures and kind of haunt you with the evil of just that. Do you want to make a, a Nazi-related announcement? No. Oh, okay. And then... Um, it's nothing bad. Okay, go ahead. There's an announcement later. But yeah. And um, and so it's much more interesting in like the slow rise that was detrimental about the Nazis was less like I mean, the acts they did were, of course, horrendous. It doesn't really deal too much with, like, the Holocaust as much, but just the the um, kind of military tactics that they that they go about um, and the ways that they try to uh, influence people. But mainly the idea, how the ideology kind of flows in a way that um, it's kind of kind of bouncing up against this uh, this kind of slow move from these very um, insulated community kind of societies mm-hmm. to a more globalized uh, modern society. The, the film opens with this this black and white um, uh, footage of this, I guess, Nazi march, Hitler parade, um, that, seemed, that makes it seem like this kind of foreign concept. And then you cut over to this, uh, you know, to this very pastoral... Mm-hmm. Uh, Austrian farm where they're all happy and like playing and running around and playing mm-hmm. games and are very happy um, showing that you know especially in the early part of the 19th uh, or the 20th century that the thing that kind of changed everything was that what, rather than being segmented in these different kind of pods of, of the community everything kind of be, started to become, become meshed together and you were you know supposed to care about wider issues you know the feelings of wider people than just your village. Mm-hmm. And so you, you see through uh, the mayor character and a number of other of the village people that that kind of globalization of their society begins to scare them and they begin to uh, kind of get into this uh, much more, um, you know, isolationist tactic, you know, mm-hmm. uh, fearing the other. And you haven't mentioned that you really liked it. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I, I was really vibing with that. I was just trying to break that down. Yeah, and I really, really like that because I, th- I think that that's much more interesting to do yeah. than just giving you like the Nazis are bad because we're like, yeah, we know the Nazis are bad. Right. And this one is more interested <laughs> in um, how something like that can kind of slowly influence people, showing that the, that people are not necessarily from day one feeling that way, but just the I think that the mix between modernity kind of entering the society, the society having to kind of expand to an extent as well as just fear can start to instill these thoughts into people's, uh, into people's minds. And so I really, really, I really thought that was, uh, intuitive. Uh, you know, if for Malik fans, your mileage may vary because a lot of the stuff, um, a lot of the same, a lot of the same things happen. You're gonna have some swirling cameras. You're gonna have people yeah. having conversations where they're like, one person's looking this way, one person's looking this way, but they're talking to each other. Now I remember the clip that was going around viral for this movie, like a couple months ago, it was like a, a a flirting like love scene, and it was just a lot of chopped up, like disparate um, 
uh, little shots. How I'm wondering, like, how fragmented or like "quote unquote" poetic is it uh, compared to some of his other recent stuff, or is it more linear? It's 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 kind of a little. He does a great job of kind of mashing both, so he yeah. takes kind of like the much more linear, narratively structured, like something like Badlands, yeah, and kind of meshes it with the much more poetic tree of life and some of his more recent stuff. Like he's able, he does a great job of like merging the two. Cool. And I think that especially at the, in the early part of the first part of the film, um, it's kind of, it's kind of like them looking back at when it was just a much more simpler time for, for yes. the, the village. And so having that kind of floating poetic, uh, mm. camera kind of, uh, allows it to be much more, it feels like kind of this phased memory that they're kind of looking back on. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'll be curious for other people. I know Jessica's catching it at some point during the festival, um, yeah. and I'll be curious to hear other people's thoughts because I thought it, it was hands, uh, hands down the best thing I saw uh, yesterday. Cool. So it was it was great. Um, even if you're not a Malik person, I think that you should check it out. Um, I mean, it's two hours, 50 minutes, but the new, it's like three hours, so. You know, and then Avengers Endgame was two hours and 40 minutes, so that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying, is you can watch it. It's 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 an interesting movie. Um, the, the next one I saw, I don't really have too much to say about it. Uh, it's Frankie. It's the latest movie from Ira Sachs, uh, who did Little Men, and uh, shoot, what's the John Lithgow? Oh, shoot. Love is Strange. Okay. John Lithgow, uh, Alfred Molina movie. Uh, he's known for kind of having these very uh, small family portrait films uh, set in New York. This one, though, moves this kind of strange family uh, dynamic to Portugal. It's, it's, it all takes place in one day. Isabel Huppert's matriarchal character has called them there. She's this aging actor who has this kind of announcement to make. Um, and you have Brendan Gleeson. You have Greg Kinnear and Marissa Tomei. You have... Uh, those are the the only kind of name people that you see, but it's this it's uh, Brittany Gleason plays her second husband. Her first husband is there as well, and she and you can see the kind of like different facets of this kind of cobbled together uh, family that has a relationship but also has kind of a weird connection between each other, and it's all kind of coalescing in this kind of last day type uh, setting on this beautiful island in Portugal. Um, I think Iris Axe movies are very inconspicuous and small, and so it's kind of difficult to find like a broader uh, concept in this one. And this one, I think, is mm-hmm. his most less assuming than the, his more recent ones. But I found it kind of. It, it, I think it's. I think it's very well done and sweet for what it is. Um, it's kind of examining uh, the various ways that. Uh, you know, I think kind of in a, in a similar fashion that the director of my next movie did in Shoplifters, kind of what it, what it's like to kind of bring apart or bring together this uh, a family out of kind of uh, out of nothing and, and kind of putting these different parts together. And Isabel Huppert, I think, is, is just really fantastic and, and great in it. Um, so if you've seen a number of his, of his other films, I would check that out. It was. Like I said, I don't have too much to say. It was pretty, it was pretty kind of straight to the point. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one I saw though is by uh, Hirokato Koreeda. Um, Very exciting. Yeah, the, the truth. This is his first um, non-Korean uh, film. This is Japanese. Or Japanese, not yeah. a Japanese film. Yeah. And 
And so this one is set in Paris. Um, Juliette Binoche and Ethan Hawke are a married couple who are visiting her mother, played by Catherine Deneuve, who is this, who is also an aging actress. Uh, but she has just put out a memoir of her life called The Truth. And uh, Julia Binoche immediately takes issue with that because I think that uh, Catherine Deneuve's character takes a lot of um, creative liberties with the mm-hmm. life that they lived. Um, and Because you can tell that they kind of have a, not a strange relationship, but just a little bit of a contentious relationship. Uh, they kind of uh, battle, battle each other on every little type kind of uh, kind of uh, issue. It's funny that Ethan Hawke's in this movie. He kind of just wears a, a sweater and has a goofy dad the entire time. <laughs> I don't really like. You probably could have. You didn't have to get Ethan Hawke for this role, but it was much like appreciated. So he was, he was goofy kind of, dad Ethan Hawke in The Truth versus goofy dad Ethan Hawke in Boyhood. Who is a goofier dad? They're about the same. It's okay, like, he's bringing the same goofy dad en- energy that he has like in Boyhood and before Midnight. Like it's just like yeah. like he's found like. This is a good length for me. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy it. I, I think we need more goofy dead uh Ethan Hawk movies. Um but this one was interesting. I don't know if uh people I know there was a lot of people who are big fans of shoplifters. I don't know yeah. if it's necessarily a better film than that. Um but I think it's an interesting I was reading some letterbox reviews and I think people were not giving it enough credit for what it was doing, uh, because it's very much examining the different kind of how we develop these relationships with our family members that, uh, especially when we're away from them for a long time, creates this kind of, uh, we kind of create this idea of who they are and how we interact with them in our heads and how it's, that doesn't always line up with necessarily how they are Mm -hmm. and and the kind of uh, ways that we have to find ways to reconnect with them, even though, um, even though they're this like parental figure of mm-hmm. ours, I saw a really good phrase that it was uh, rather than uh, shoplifters were strangers becoming a family. This one is a family that's becoming split that it, like enters as strangers. Well, on that note, um, Corey Ada's biggest influence is definitely Ozu, yeah. right? And and some of his movies have been placed in the the slow cinema uh, category for for modern the modern day movement. And I'm wondering uh, how much that influence comes through with an English language cast. Um, especially since, I don't know, I don't see like Ethan Hawke doing Ozu. I mean, maybe not because he was in first performed, but I'm just wondering what, what's the tone of it? It definitely leans since it's set in Paris, it's definitely a more French town. Um, I would think a lot more closer to like, uh, later Olivier Assayas movies where yeah. you kind of have these longer monologues. Um, I mean, it sounds kind of like Clouds of Sils Maria. A little it's a little bit, bit like that. It kind of has a, a little bit of a Hong Sang Soo uh, like vibe to it where you have these kind of long dinner conversations that it's like kind of slowly fester and fester and slowly will erupt into a, like a very personal thing. Uh, there's this relationship that's kind of hinted at that they never like sit there and expand on about this other actress named Sarah, who was a good friend of the Catherine Deneuve character mm-hmm. who, uh, I guess died. And I think in something it was suicide, but she had kind of passed away and that, and that had kind of caused a strain in, in her and Juliet Binoche's relationship, but kind of watching the two of them together is really nice. I think that, you know, Catherine Deneuve is a legend of her own, and that Julia Binoche is probably one of the best working actresses today. And so it's kind of 
it's really fun to watch them playing a mother and daughter and having to work off each other a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, like I said, I was really, I want to go and buy Ethan Hawke's sweater from that movie because it looked comfy and mm -hmm. available now in the Tiff gift, gift, gift Shop. We need to let you yeah, know. It needs to be like some merchandise. Um, all right. Well, I've talked too much. I'm gonna leave. It. I'm gonna bounce over to I guess Jessica for her movie that she caught last night at Tiff. Okay. How many people are watching this right now? One. One person. More people will find it and later. It's like seven thirty a.m. Well, is that's that? why. Who I know, but who is that person? Uh, it might be me because I have oh the laptop. Oh my gosh! Are you serious? No, it's, I'm not logged in any Facebook account, that's so nice. I don't know if that's registering or not. But anyways. Anyways. Uh, people will find it. Okay. It'll be in the podcast. It's nice, fine. Nice. They just so, want to enjoy our lovely My first movie of TIFF ever, because this is my first time ever at TIFF, was Lena from Lima. And um, it's the first fiction film from Maria Paz Gonzalez. Um, the, she is a documentarian, but this is her first uh, film that isn't a documentary. Which, like, there is... No information about this film online, mm -hmm. but they are saying that it is a documentary, which it is not. So that it's is a musical. Yes, it's well, it's described as a musical comedy, but I sort of take issue with the comedy part of it um, because the story revolves around Lena, who is a woman from Peru, and she goes to work for a Chilean family. Um, she is basically a nanny, but she also takes care of their, of their house matters. And she has been doing this for 10 years and she has a son that is living in Peru who's a preteen and she is trying to communicate with him via phone, but she only has so many credits on her phone where she can video chat him or she sends him voice messages back and forth. Um, but she, for the most part, is very alone, and um, the film is really just going through the mundaneness of her life as um, basically a nanny, and she is just taking this spoiled rich kid to swim practice, and is just sitting there waiting for her to be done with some swim practice, and then her boss has her because uh, he's out of town all the time, of course, mm -hmm. and he has her watching the kid and also um, taking care of his huge house that he's building. And she lives with a bunch of other migrant workers, so she'll stay in this super nice house that just has bubble wrap all over everything. Mm -hmm. And, of course, she doesn't want to, like, mess anything up, so she's constantly, like, sitting on couches that just have bubble wrap on them and is uncomfortable. <laughs> And uh, then she goes back to this super crowded um, home that has migrant workers and just has a, the bottom of a bunk bed that she rents out. And she is constantly trying to find comfort in whatever way she can, whether that be through like what she's doing or through people, because it's a very lonely, solitary life. So you have, so you have this just very, you know, stark realness that's happening. And then, uh, Maria Paz Gonzalez cuts through it with these musical numbers that are very vibrant. They're, um, they kind of come out of nowhere. Like you're really, you're plunged into the first one and it's a children's play mm -hmm. and the children just start singing and then a spotlight like hits her in the center of a theater. 
And she started singing. One of the only images of this movie online um, looks a lot like Anna Biller's The Love Witch. Like that mm-hmm. high contrast, like very colorful, like glitzy costumes set. Um, does Is that kind of the vibe of all these musical numbers? Not all of them. Um, it has a very like operatic like feel yeah. to it because a lot of the songs are just sad songs about like leaving your roots and not knowing why you're in this country that you are anymore because you don't feel at home there but you don't feel at home Mm -hmm. in your home country because you haven't been there for years Mm -hmm. and um there's a lot of catholic iconography within the numbers which it's super cool because she there my i have two that are my favorite one of them is like uh, they have, like, flamingo dancers, and they do, it's like a Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend riff, but she's in a dress that looks like bubble wrap, almost. Okay. So it's, like, kind of, like, in her head, her, like, flipping that, I think, but it's really good. Um, and then the second one is she just looks like the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. and she has kind of, like, the the crown, like, attached to her head. Is that she, the one that's it's on the, the main TIFF image. website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, that one's pretty good too, but I think what, what is, what they're really trying to work through with this movie, I think, is her just trying to figure out how to liberate herself within this very, like, constricting place that she's in, um, and, and she, her son is moving on to a phase in his life where he doesn't want to talk to his mom anymore, and she's never there anyway, and so he, at one point, like, when he, she is Skyping him, just gets on the phone with his soccer coach and just walks away from her. Mm-hmm. Even though this is, like, the only time she has to talk to him, like, once a month or something like that. And he has a girlfriend, which she finds out through Facebook, through the kid that she is, like, watching. And then her her ex-husband has remarried and had a baby and has moved on. Mm-hmm. And so she... She sorts through this loneliness by banging random dudes. Oh, good. Um, and I, there is one review that is up about this movie, and I read through it. Mm-hmm. And this person thinks that this movie is is about liberation, and she is finding her own way. But I don't necessarily agree with that because she's just banging to fill her loneliness, and I don't. I don't think that she's building a life for herself. I think she's trying to fill a hole because she has nothing else. And so but I does she does she feel fulfilled by the end of the movie or is it is it like dour or bleak? And I uh, I think that the ending is very like it's not the strong ending at all. And I was honestly I didn't even know the movie's ending. Like it's yeah. her like riding in a golf cart and then she like walks off and I don't even know what she was trying to do. Okay. And so it's I mean, it it has it there's a certain part where I think it should have ended, but that is not where mm-hmm. that it is at. Like it okay. kind of dwindled a little bit at the end. But overall, I think it's a good movie. I I think that there's an issue with, like, people watching it and not really understanding if it's supposed to be a liberating movie for her. Like, I don't know if that is the point of what they're trying to say, but I do know that musical numbers are really great. Um, It's, I think that Lena as a character is amazing. That actress is amazing. She really sells 
all of the musical numbers that she does. Um, and I don't know. I hope that Maria Paz Gonzalez does more fiction mm-hmm. films because I think you can definitely see her um, documentarian voice in it, but I think that she cuts it up nicely with the musical numbers and, and has like a narrative flow to it too. Yeah. So I'm excited for it. It's my first movie that I'm seeing today, um, and it's a movie that – I wasn't aware of before the TIFF schedule went out, and it was just a film that filled a hole in my schedule. But just um, like it, she's trying to fill a hole, just like she's filled a hole in her life. Yeah. But you know, it's, since signing up to see it, it's become one of my most anticipated because it, it just seems so interesting. So I'll I'll give my take. Well, I'm the first yeah. person to review it on Letterbox, so you can be the second person to review All it on right. Letterbox. Um, okay, so our last movie, which Zach and I saw together, is David Copperfield, or the personal history of David Copperfield. Not sure make it more complicated than it already was. Uh, I'll tell you, that feels on, on point. <laughs> uh, it's by Armando Yannichi, who made uh, In the Loop and uh, Death of Stalin uh, last year, two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago. You, and you um, also did uh, Veep for people who watch that. Like, Veep you know. and uh, The Thick of It. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so he's working in TV and working in film. Um, here he's adapting the famous Charles Dickens novel. Uh, Dev Patel plays uh, David Copperfield. And we got a really uh, big cast. You could probably name off more people than I can, but like Tilda Swinton is yeah, in it. Tilda Swinton, um, Hugh Laurie, yeah. um, Peter Capaldi, uh, Gwendolyn Christie. I think those are the kind of big names in it. Yeah, the the supporting cast is very colorful and strong. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this movie is a bit of a mess. Uh, I haven't read David Copperfield, so like, there's my literature degree cred revoked. I guess I was forced to read it in the uh, temporary. Yeah, but <laughs> um, but I mean, Charles Dickens just had this very episodic style where he's yeah. he's publishing in periodicals and so each chapter is kind of can be its own self-contained story and this movie uh kind of leans into that there are all these these, these chapter breaks where you're seeing david Copperfield write about his life well it's like uh, they kind of uh, structure it with the conceit of him he's reading off this like the final published version of it at the yeah. very beginning and so then we're it's you know we're kind of going through the different- it's a weird frame i don't like that frame it's a, uh, it's a lazy frame but whatever yeah and and so you're just getting these different sections of this this uh you know life that has so many different aspects and, and chapters to it where he's bouncing around from different relatives and working in a sweatshop at one point, et cetera. People who have read David Copperfield know this stuff already. Um, the fact that Armando Iannucci is the guy directing it um, excited me. I wouldn't have seen it if it wasn't for his name mm-hmm. because I I think of Charles Dickens as like very, you know, musty, moldy old literature for like, you know, <laughs> a sophisticated British people, right? Um, but Armando Iannucci's style is so vicious and cutting and he's always like saying something about the state of the world at the time that he's making the movie mm-hmm. uh very present right and he came out um and said that this is set in the 1840s but to them it's the present day and this was long before brexit and i'm like oh is this going to be a brexit movie is are you taking charles dickens and making it your brexit movie on youtube because i feel like you're the person to make the brexit movie um 
but he doesn't do that. Um, it's it was it's like peachy, so it doesn't have his trademark like very colorful use of profanity. Um, Which honestly, giant highlight <laughs> any of his stuff. It's just yeah the. The imaginative way in which curse yes. words are strewn together, yeah, especially in the loop. Well, it's like it's like he he read David Copperfield and became obsessed with like the imaginative way that Charles Dickens uses his prose. But I'm like, yeah, Armando, but we want you to like go on a and curse rant. Like, but you can definitely tell that it's him who wrote the script, even though it is very family friendly, yeah. because he's taking these scenes, uh, obviously from Charles Dickens, and he's in imbuing them with his dialogue and punching up the dialogue um, in a way that you know Charles Dickens didn't write it. Like it's, it almost has the rhythm of like a TV comedy, um, lots of um, awkward miscommunications and uh, uh, like little indirect slights and jabs at people. Um, you and I both talked about it in comparison to both The Favorite and Love and Friendship. Mm -hmm. um, but Love and Friendship is by far the one of those that works the best. <laughs> yeah, uh, like that they're, they're trying to do that same thing of just like that, that understated witty banter. But I don't know. It, it feels to me like this is a straight Charles Dickens, David Copperfield adaptation with these weird like dialogue flourishes throughout. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like a new adaptation. It doesn't feel like it's saying anything. Um, and and he, it's just like structurally such a mess. Well, he came out also and was talking about how when he read the book or reread the book and, and decided to make the movie that he, uh, that he found a lot of like connections to like modern life and yeah. you know the, the whatever's that people feel in modern life and you get that but it's not I don't get that but I, I'm just like okay but it's not a very nuanced like it's like it's not like he's really saying anything he's just like David Copperfield's anxious are you anxious and I'm like I, I never so I right. never felt like he was inviting me to make any sort of parallel no. there it wasn't and so like that so that, I thought that was weird I just what like, I think it is honestly is this is Armando Iannucci's Romeo plus Juliet, where he's making the cool version of the literary classic that the cool English teacher will play in English class when they're making their history. So like when you walk in with your with your shades and you're like, guys, we're watching personal history, David Copperfield. And they're like, oh, by Armando Iannucci. <laughs> and all the Armando Iannucci heads in the classroom cheer. You are in a STEM school. They might be like, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this movie is not that good. Um, it's it, it's one it's a very weird case of a movie that made me laugh fairly often. It is frequently funny, but it's not good. It's not a good movie. Blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hugh Laurie is 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 really entertaining. It's just this yeah. kind of absent-minded uh, character. Tilda Swinton. The, honestly, the biggest laugh I got out of the entire movie, and I, I kind of got high hopes for it initially, was when she came in during the like birth of David Copperfield scene at the very beginning, mm -hmm. and she's uh, yeah. yelling about how he needs to be named uh, Trotmore, Trot, Trotson, or Trotmore. I forgot. Yeah. And uh, and she, and she's then she's talking to the to the maid, and the maid's like uh, says that her name is uh, what is it, Pegadidi or whatever. And she's like, well, that is an absurd name. We she said, a human being went to a hospital and asked to name your child. And she's, like, and she's like, what's your name again? She's like, Trotmore. She's like, oh, I thought it was Pot Calls Kettle Black. And I was like, <laughs> and oh, damn, that was really entertaining. Now that you mentioned that scene, that's a flashback scene, which kind of, it's worth pointing out that 
when they do non-chronological structure in this movie, there's a mechanic where um, a character from the present day will be narrating it, but will also be there in the scene and is mm-hmm. like looking looking at the people he's talking about, but no one else is acknowledging they're in the room. So that's Dev Patel generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like a weird fourth wall, not fourth wall breaking, but like fourth wall into the flashback breaking thing. Um, and I just didn't really see the point of it um, other than to serve this frame story that, again, it's a lazy frame. I know that it's maybe more interesting than just doing straight narration, but yeah. we pro- probably didn't even need the narration. No, we, you generally don't need narration. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I like I, I'll give it its due that it's much more interesting than just doing like a straight uh, BBC masterpiece, you know? Yeah, yeah. Thing of, of David. Cochran. I would rather watch this. Yeah, this one is way that. more enjoyable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just there's not there's just not much there. Uh, you know, yeah. it's just it's a fine movie. I'm sure people will enjoy it. It seemed like reading some letterbox stuff last night that people did get uh, did enjoy it, but I don't know. For me, I'm kind of just like. Like like you said, this will be my last point. But like you said, with like love and friendship, I think it's just head and shoulders over yeah. like the favorite and David Copperfield because and I think even the favorite is over this. Yeah, because I, I think that the, both of those movies are very like aware of, of of themselves constantly, and love and friendship take is kind of very uh, ingrained within that that. Uh, that voice and within that period, <laughs> but is able to weave in these just very uh, kind of modern, yeah, very witty, sardonic, yeah. Dialogue. But it feels natural. In it's that very movie. natural. Uh, this, it you feel the outside like 2019 influence like pushing into yeah, it, and exactly. it doesn't really work. Um, and there's also like it plays the sentimental Charles Dickens stuff too straight. There's really saccharine score that ruins many, many scenes. Yeah. Um, but my fi- my one, or my, my favorite moment that made me last the hardest was Tilda Swinton literally yelling, get off my lawn, and then kicking a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of good little moments like that peppered throughout the movie. But, uh, yeah, she like lifts the woman off yeah. the donkey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. But uh, we got we got a, a, a full day today. Of- what are we seeing today, y'all? Um, I have Radioactive, which is the latest from uh, Arjan Satrapi. Yeah, I got that. And then we both, all three of us, are going to see Vargas by Ag- Agnes, the uh, last film by Agnes Varna, uh, as well as Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm ending my night with the new Pedro Costa film, which Andrew's super excited about. You haven't seen a single Pedro Costa film, and this is the fifth in a series, and I can't wait to talk to you guys. Portrait of Fire, the new Pedro Costa, which is called Vida Lina Varela. Uh, I'm also seeing Lena from Lima this morning, and I'm seeing a movie called Krabby 2562, which I'm very excited about um, for because of the two directors who have teamed up. They've both made very good movies in the past. Uh, it also one. describes Jessica this morning. Krabby <laughs> <laughs> um, Really? It's <laughs> uh, too early. <laughs> I have five hours of sleep. What are you seeing yeah. today, Jessica? All of the two, two other ones I said. And I'm also seeing Castle on the Ground. Um, which is by a Canadian director. Its premiere is tonight, and also um, it's about opioid addiction. So That's fine. everybody, get ready for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sweet.
Well, thank you, one Facebook Live person, maybe me, uh, for tuning in. Hopefully other people will find this feed later, and if not, it'll be on a podcast. So uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we're going to take a short break, though, and we'll be back with Patricia White after this. Hey, Cinematariots. This is your co-host, Lydia Creech, with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we definitely want your money. We still want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema, but now we're getting into the Patreon game, baby. We've brought on a lot of new voices to contribute to the site, and we want to honor our responsibility to compensate all these smart people for their hard work. To help us out, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary to sign up at the $5 a month level. In exchange, our patrons will get an exclusive bonus episode every month, weekly shoutouts on each episode of the show, and the ability to dictate a movie for us to cover eventually. If money's tight, we get it. There are still a few things you can do that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free to help us reach more listeners. <laughs> Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, to let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we put out every week. So, to recap... Review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, share with your friends and family, and sign up to be a patron. We would truly appreciate it. Uh, thanks for listening, and now back to the show. back with part two of episode 263 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1977's News from Home. Uh, it is directed by Chantel Ackerman, and joining us to talk about News from Home as well as uh, the director is Patricia White. She is a professor of film and media studies at Swarthmore College. Uh, she also wrote the book on Chantel Ackerman, uh, which you can find on wherever you've buy books but patricia thank you so much for uh for joining us to talk about it thank you it's a pleasure to be here i should say that i'm the editor of that uh volume and uh, i got a lot of i got a lot of really great perspective on this film and other works by ackerman uh working with people who had known her and worked with her for decades Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure for people interested to link, uh, uh, to put a link for that in the, uh, in the description, but, uh, news from home. Uh, this was my first time watching it. Andrew, you had seen it before. Um, I, I'll, I'll just go real quickly and then I'll, I'll, I'll be curious to get your perspective as somebody who's watched a lot more Ackerman than I have, but this one kind of, it was just like, 
uh, it was just kind of like I'm like I was getting hit in the face with emotion. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just <laughs> yeah. I think for for the first while, I'm kind of trying to figure out, uh, you know, just the whole what what what's going on, like how, the structure, all of that, all of that stuff. And once I got into what she's doing and how she's framing the the letters, along with just the these images of just kind of minutia in New York, but at the same time, they feel very of New York, especially at that time period. Uh, and I kind of caught on to the, to, to the kind of thesis that she was going with. Um, I was just left kind of, uh, yeah, I just kind of, kind of with a gut punch. I mean that the last shot, what jump show we can talk about a little bit later where you have the, the city kind of drifting off. Um, it, it was one of those moments where you watch the movie and then, you know, the, it ends and it goes to black and then you just kind of sit there for about 10, 15 minutes, just kind of staring going, I don't know like what I'm supposed to do next because this was just there was so there's so many emotions and feelings and complex thoughts from watching this um and so I really appreciate it I loved it a lot um Andrew though I'm curious what you made of news from home as somebody who has watched a lot more of her work oh I mean I I second all of those things uh it's it's a really emotional film um it's simple in a lot of ways in terms of the the basic premise of how it's put together you know you you have the the letters read by Ackerman herself over um, just these these still and very subtly moving images of New York City and uh, the the space of time elapsing more and more between each letter like it it's almost like um, um, formulaic is like a is a negative has a negative connotation to it, but it does seem like there's a, there's a concept and an execution. Yeah. Structural. Right. And, but somehow it's, um, it's so moving. Um, it's so sad. It's so beautiful. Um, and there are so many, uh, little things about it. I love like the, like the distance between the camera and the people fluctuating over the course of the film at the beginning, they're all very, very far away as I guess we're meant to assume Ackerman is lonely and isolated in New York. And then as she becomes closer to the hustle and bustle, her mom's words start to fade out of the audio mix. And like, like you said, that, that final shot of, of New York um, slowly kind of, becoming more and more distant from the 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 ship that she's on is uh i don't know it's just really resonant and maybe my favorite final shot in any movie i i love it it's such a simple idea but uh so powerful in execution it's no it's it's extraordinary it's um it's you know that coming into new york harbor which is the immigrant you know experience Mm -hmm. here it's both kind of a reverse immigrant story. She's, you know, Mm -hmm. in New York, she's thinking about both her mother's migrations, um, which is a sort of subtext to all of her work, her mom, Mm -hmm. um, and her her whole family fled the Nazis and didn't really talk a lot about it, but that displacement is just there all the time. Um, and it's, you know, and it's sort of shrouded in fog. It's, uh, you know, both present and kind of really cinematic. Like you can't touch it. It's like a, you know, framed, screened, foggy image. It's just, 
cinema, you know, slowly moving. You're the only one that's kind of holding it together because you're watching. Uh, Yeah, it's really stunning. You you get a lot of those moments too, especially uh, as you mentioned, Andrew, as as she kind of becomes more ingrained in the city and you start to, because like you said, there's that structure at the beginning where you kind of see, you're like, oh, I'm going to see people and then I'm going to hear the letter and there, it seems very consistent. And then as the consistency dies away, I mean, the one, the, the sequence I think about is that one where she is uh, like you, you're on the subway and you literally ride a subway, I think for like three or four stops and you're kind of waiting for the letters to pick up again. And there's these long parts i mean it's not a long movie it's only 88 minutes but there's like these long portions of the movie where you're kind of waiting for another letter to happen but instead you're just transfixed by the different images and people and spaces that she's taking you to as as you're waiting for the next connection between her and her mother another sequence that i think about like that is the first scene where the camera is truly moving um, though technically it's it's not really moving it's it's in the back of a car or something right um, and you're just going through traffic through the streets of New York and I want to say that's that's approaching 10 minutes that that single shot correct me if I'm wrong Patricia but um, you kind of forget about the on a certain level, it seems like you forget about the letters because there's so much like motion happening, which is the first first time you're seeing that in the film. But then whenever the next letter comes up, it kind of hits you like, oh, it's been such a long time since one of these has happened. So if if her intent is to express like, I don't know, the growing distance between her and her mother and the um, the the gradual like growing in frequency of these communications like it only makes sense for her to put these big spaces of almost nothing between them mm-hmm. and it feels like um you know like forgetting about your mother which you know mm-hmm. we do sometimes and then yeah. this this kind of return that's out of sync but maybe you know kind of conforming to a different rhythm and i think that's that's really affecting. Um, the one-sidedness of the correspondence is, you know, it's painful. Yeah. Um, we get the mom saying, you know, either the content of the letter or we haven't heard from you, you know, uh, all of these questions and, and read in this kind of um, sort of rushed way. Uh, so you feel it's, 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 hard to even figure out like what who you're empathizing with because it's the mom and the daughter at the same time and then you know i don't think we've said this we talked about the figures in the frame we've talked about camera distance but all of this emotion in this movie is um generated without any characters or without Mm -hmm. anybody really ever being in like a classic medium close-up or you know any kind of human figure to frame to to pin your emotions on and so somehow you're just enveloped in this city and you're enveloped in this audio um with those pauses that you described and i don't know it's this in in interesting way of doing interiority by like not having people to look at 
And to go back to your point about the one-sidedness of the communication we're getting, you know, some of the things that get said in the mother's letters are like, why don't you really tell us about your life? Like, tell us about your friends and and your job and things like that. And uh, there's just all these um, assumed silences on on Chantal Ackerman's part of like, she's not, maybe she's sending letters back and forth to her mother, but she's not like really being vulnerable or intimate with her. It's like almost a, we we can assume it's a, it's a chore for her to just like send this back. And maybe one of the ways in which the, uh, the movie is so emotional is that you get a sense of her, her guilt. Like maybe there's uh, the movie comes from a from an inspirational place of guilt. My my wife was watching this with me, and she had never seen an Ackerman movie before, and she was asking like, "Why would she make this movie that makes her look so bad?" Um, and and I think that it it creates such an emotional catharsis in that last shot when you finally realize that she's going back. Um, it it just all. Um, I don't know. It all culminates so well. And I, I do think maybe she's going back, but she also could just be going to Staten Island. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Don't 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 hurt my heart like that. <laughs> I definitely think there's a return, but it's not going to be, you know, a return. It's 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 still going to be exile. Right. There's always yeah. going to be a mismatch like there is in every letter between like when you say something and when it arrives at its destination. So even her gesture of return, um, you know, it, it's not going to be closure of return. It's going to be, you know, something that I don't know, she'll still have that box of letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and I think there's a beautiful uh, shot in her film. um Histoire d'Amérique, um, um, uh, uh, Stories of America, that's uh, similarly, you know, kind of approaching New York Harbor, and uh, more specifically about Jewish immigrants, and they kind of take turns telling these stories outside um, to the camera, and there's a little bit of humor in it, um, but there, I think it wouldn't feel so I don't know warm or if it if there wasn't this other kind of ghost of this film behind it this you know place Mm -hmm. where the filmmaker has looked at this from like she's young when she makes this movie you know she's just come to New York from Europe and um she's yeah so her returns to this these spaces this sort of kind of weirdly underpopulated New York, um, you know, across her film, she's kind of filled up those spaces with emotions and resonances. I'm curious to get a little bit better sense of the timeline, since I imagine you know a lot about her biography. Uh, I have the Criterion Eclipse set with uh, a couple of her films in it, and it's on. This movie is on a disc called The New York Films. Uh, it's it's this. It's um, Hotel Monterey, and it's La Chambre, or I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Um, did she? Or are those the only films that she made in New York? And what was kind of her trajectory of going to New York and leaving? Well, she came um, to New York um, very young, showed up, you know, at somebody's door (laughs) um, that she, you know, friend of a friend, um, uh, this woman, Jane Stein, who um, has taken some beautiful photos of her at that time. But she she um, 
she had an introduction to Babette Mangold, who was a still is a filmmaker and a cinematographer. And uh, she was sort of introduced to the New York art scene, performance, theater, but also to these structural filmmakers like Michael mm -hmm. Snow, who were, you know, um, making films uh, with very, you know, specific formula, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these kind of often very abstract, you know, um, wavelength um, is one of the most famous, 45-minute uh, zoom um, in a Tribeca loft. And when I see these images in News from Home of Tribeca in the 70s before it's, you know, gentrified, um, I always think in one of those lofts. Michael Snow, his <laughs> Snow's wavelength had, you know, made. But there's also this, the audio track on that movie is also very, you know, a very strong element of the, of the tension. Um, it's a, a sound that, you know, is a, at a particular wavelength that gets more and more annoying after 45 minutes of <laughs> a slow zoom. So, um, so that, so I digress. She, um, she was really impressed with these structural films, but she, um, had, you know, very personal themes, um, to work out. So she made these, all these films with Babette Mungolt on 16 millimeter, um, with Bumbelt being the, um, you know, shooting them and then, um, took her, uh, took news from home back to, uh, France, she's Belgian, but, uh, she was going to France to try to, um, you know, make, make bigger movies, which for Chantal Ackerman are sort of longer, slow yeah. movies that, you know, make you think and feel, um, they're not like, you know, none of them are crowded with narrative detail or anything like that. Um, so, she, but she, she, you know, had news from home was in festivals and she got, uh, there we go. <laughs> we got, <laughs> um, she got, Jean, uh, she got Delphine Sarig to read uh, her script and made Jean Dielman, which was, you know, much more polished and typically. Not a big, not a big Ackerman fan <laughs> over there. Yeah. What's up? Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I'll try to. <laughs> it's, okay. it's a, it's a dog cat standoff, I think. Um, <laughs> there we go. What? Bye-bye. So, so am I understanding the timeline right that she <laughs> shot the footage for News From Home before making Jean Dielman, but Jean Dielman came out before News From Home came out? Um, in Europe, yeah. I guess, okay. yeah, it came out because in some ways these, these New York films weren't really made for any kind of traditional exhibition. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, and, and, and that's how experimental film worked for, for decades. Mm. You know, people would show Probably. things that galleries or spaces and it wasn't in and, and, and Europe, it, you know, kind of had that amazing um, infrastructure to show a Godard movie, a, uh, an Ackerman movie um, in a, in a theatrical context as well as a festival circuit. So, yeah, so she, so people got to see, um, you know, am, am I missing my, I'm thinking, um, the other film that was in there is Je Tue Il El, which she made yeah. when she got back to Europe. And that's the one I think that was 
um, released kind of right along with uh, Jean Delman. And it, too, is a very, um, you know, modest. She's in that film. It's very yeah. raw. Um, and I think people, I mean, there's this idea that Jean Delman is just this wunderkind movie. You know, she's 24, 25 when she makes it. And it's so beautiful and has this incredible performance by Delphine Sirig, who's, you know, one of the biggest sort of art film um, divas. Um, And, but it's part of this whole, you know, more modest, but also very, very rigorous um, and beautiful body of work that she's making at that time. I think uh, rewatching News From Home made me consider just how personal so many of the films in her filmography are. Um, you know, especially thinking about News From Home in relation to No Home Movie, which is all, all also about the relationship between her and her mother, and in that case, corresponding mostly over Skype, which is really interesting. Um, and then thinking about Jean Dillman as a movie that's kind of based on or inspired by the life of her mother and uh, Jetuil L starring her and um, starring her in extremely vulnerable, like raw, like you said, performance where there's like 20 minutes of her having sex in that movie. Um, it's just uh, her film. Her filmography. I think uh, people maybe tend to think of it as very academic, but it's it's so it's so like intensely personal and emotional. Yeah, and very um, and so intuitive. Um, you know, the, it, it's very very rigorous camera placement. Yeah. Um, and you know, sort of the. the planar surface of the image, you know, the angles, all of that is, you know, you could say was, you know, uh, done with a formula like the structural filmmakers, mm-hmm. most of them men. Um, but in a way, it really just, it comes from, she would say, I placed the camera at this height because that's how tall I am. I'm <laughs> there because it's like where I would draw a breath. I mean, she really, and you feel those, those rhythms, I think, in her mm-hmm. editing and in her camera placement. I mean, obviously you're watching it, you know, drawing a breath, yeah. um, figuring out where to look in the frame. And it's just a very intimate way of doing cinema. Right. I love that thought of her cutting when it feels appropriate to draw a breath because, I mean, in a way, her movies are operating on the rhythm of human life, or at least Jean Dillman is. I mean, News From Home is doing it in sort of a protracted way. But in Jean Dillman, like, people complain about just how long and how boring that movie is, but, like, they also do chores for three hours and, uh, like, don't, don't uh, you know, they survive. Uh, so you can survive that film and, and think about it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a really interesting quote from her. Well, the, uh, just kind of to that point uh, about how it seems it, it, at least the way that she shoots the film and edits the film that it seems kind of like it's living uh a lot of the images i was thinking about while watching this uh is that some, some of the uh some of the sequences and some of the uh, places that you see in new york aren't like they're not they're not the spaces of the city that you would assume would be like right <laughs> yeah. you get the subway station this- for times square once you do, but you're not seeing like the Statue of Liberty. Right, yeah. you know, it's not you're not seeing like these iconic uh, like 
you're not seeing these iconic sites, but you're you're catching like the alleyways and the streets, and you and the thing I was thinking about was there. Everybody has kind of those places in cities that either they lived or frequently visit that are very unassuming, unremarkable places in the city but have this resonance for you have this deep uh you know well of memories for you and i was kind of feeling that while watching that because it's you you look at this and you're like this is it's like an alleyway there's trash cans over here and there's like a dog walking around but you got to feel like there was probably some there was some memory that was that was meaningful to her that when you see that there's something that like you're trying to kind of like empathize with her to get to that point where you can kind of feel the importance of this space as unassuming as it is to her uh, in her life. And I, I found that to be one of the most moving parts of the film. I, I agree. I think my sense of it is though, not necessarily that they have been places that she's dwelled and is returning to, but that she has a really uncanny ability to like dwell in the spaces that she's in. So what I mean is I feel like many of her movies, so she made one called Dest from the East, um, which has a lot of lateral tracking shots. You know, she, she, that's definitely part of her vocabulary and a lot of long stationary shots. But she's kind of traveling in that movie and she's seeing places for the first time. And even though she's in New York, um, you know, living in New York and not paying attention to her mom, there's a way in which she's she's kind of memorizing the spaces or taking them in, you know. So I, 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 I feel that some of the frames are very known. Um, yeah. But there's also just a really amazing way of seeing that she conveys to us that we, you know, because again, there aren't a lot of people in these, in these frames, you know, there are lots of it shot in the morning. There's, you know, very empty streets for New York. Um, But you have the sense of, you know, attention. Yeah. Um, that she's paid and that you're paying, you know, kind of. Yeah. The second time I watched John Dillman, I watched it with a, a notebook in front of me and I was, I was able to kind of map out a blueprint of the apartment uh, based on the repetition of certain shots and, and the cuts between them. She, she really constructs the space for you mentally in in the way that she moves through spaces by not moving the camera but like showing you the sequential order of rooms and stuff like that uh, she does a similar thing from to new york here but of course it new york is so sprawling that uh you feel like you're only getting a, a tiny bit of it and one of the thing that's um really impactful about that last shot is just thinking about how all of the images that you've taken in in the last 80 minutes are in that little space that you're you're looking at in the final couple minutes it's just uh kind of mind-boggling to think about <laughs> i feel like one thing just uh, just back to something you were saying at the beginning of that comment yeah you, you know like the the way that the apartment so jean diablenal takes place in an apartment and i i met this artist who said that she sort of had this like long time um 
obsession with with making a model of that apartment you know oh my constructing the actual space from it and um and you know we finally found a, a, a drawing of it and she was like wow i had the kitchen over here or whatever but but what i was thinking <laughs> when you were talking was the way that new york is a grid and yeah. what better city um, you know, for Chantal Ackerman, who almost never, you know, shoots things at an angle. It's right. always <laughs> frontal. Yeah. So, so there's a way in which, you know, you kind of, there's an order to the city she's created, even if it's not complete. So, and I was just thinking um, uh, that I think I, I didn't make a mistake before because she did come back. She made, she came back to New York to make news from home. Um, she did the other films. And then, um, you know, went to Europe and made Jetu Il and Jean Diamant and then came back to work with Mungold again on News From Home. Now, this is kind of an off-topic question, but um, we recently did a series on um, narrative and documentary features about the South. And in our research, we found Chantel Ackerman has a movie called South, um, which is set in Texas. And uh, we were not able to track it down, and none of us have seen it. But I'm wondering if you have and, and what that movie is like. Yeah, well, it's very intense. I mean, so, you know, she had a very long career, um, and these consistent formal tropes, you know, the frontal shot, the lateral tracking shot, the duration, um, and then scenes drawn from sort of dailiness on the quotidian, as you were saying, and also like rooms and apartments. So La Chambre is the room, and then there's right. like a whole set of films about people moving in and moving out. But and um, she made a series of videos about places um, later, and so I guess yeah, it would be analog video, and. This was after death, which was also um, an installation. So she was kind of thinking about um, showing moving images in a gallery context and, you know, um, and traveling uh, through Eastern Europe, which she did in that one. So she also did these, this travel to the American South. And it's it's quite chilling what the movie is. It's... Um, one tracking shot follows the trajectory of the truck that dragged James Byrd to his death um, mm-hmm. in Texas. Um, it, a you know case that was horrifying, um, and that I think you know in some ways isn't really her story to tell. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I think she thought a lot about, it wasn't about sensationalizing. It was about like retracing uh, a space where something very traumatic had happened. And she used her vocabulary of the kind of mounted camera on a car to retrace that. So it's really, um, it's, it's, it's talk about emotions, you know? Yeah. Um, it, at, so in, when I say it's not her story to tell, I meant I mean that she's very aware in that film, and then she has another one um, about migrants on the border um, between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, and I think that the film shows doesn't presume to be like um, you know um, 
a complete or, you know, not a news report. It really grounds her as uh, somebody who just wants to see and look and witness, I guess, and testify through her camera. And I guess that's consistent with, you know, even what's going on in News From Home, where she's like looking as a um, temporary resident of the city. Uh, yeah, so, and she, she, and she made a few films later in New York and was back and forth a lot there. But um, the films that I would link, films and videos that I would link south with are, she made one in, um, in Israel where she basically doesn't leave her apartment. Um, and a lot of it is like out the window, which is sometimes covered in blinds. Um, so there's sort of a series of films that are about, I don't know, haunted spaces, I guess. Yeah. Um, she carried a lot of, a lot of pain, you know, and right. when we were, I don't mean to turn this too grim, but when we were talking about that, the last shot of uh, news from home, um, kind of, floating and drifting away from New York, it's, there's just so much in her work is about loss. And now that we've lost her, it's even harder to watch some of these images. What, uh, you know, I'm somebody who spent a lot of time studying her and, uh, studying her work. What, what was your first, um, what was your first exposure to, to Ackerman? I mean, what was the first time that you saw one of her films and kind of reacted to it in a way that said, this is somebody who's special? Well, well, I was, a, I was an undergraduate, you know, film student. Um, and I was, a, you know, really interested in feminist film, women filmmakers. And I, it was already kind of legendary, Jean Dielman. Um, and uh, I went to, I drove to another college where they ha- had a print of it and they were going to show it and, you know, just was transfixed. <laughs> uh, so it was really already kind of like a pilgrimage. Um, yeah. So it was John Dillman and then Jutu Illel, which really is, you know, um, I was interested in that one kind of as a structural film, you know, Jutu Illel, it's using this grammatical structure, but then it has, as you mentioned, this kind of raw, raw lesbian sex scene um raw in a you know in a Chantal Ackerman way yeah. so, it's, so it's like kind of formally composed and black and white and just sort of um manic but also I don't know tender yeah. it's very yeah, interesting. Like the that camera is so is- still but the people are are mm-hmm. like just so uh I don't know erratic on screen yeah, yeah, they're just kind of—I uh, never get the right word for it. There's a sort of franticness. Yeah. Um, that's not exactly—it's choreography more than like sex, right? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, yeah. So, so that movie made a really big impression on me because of the vulnerability, and you know, right. of, so it's such an interesting pair with with um, News from Home because the vulnerability as your wife said, you know, about like the person who's not, you know, writing her mom back. Um, there's this vulnerability in a movie that has like, she's not in at all. And there's no, not any other bodies in it, let alone, you know, naked ones. 
Um, and then the vulnerability of Jatulel, where it's um, it's very little uh, mm. is said, and um, she's present on screen. That's uh, I've been thinking a lot. We we do this uh, we do this kind of non uh, non institutional canon list where we poll a lot of uh, of cinephiles on Twitter and other avenues and ask them you know what what are the greatest films of all time and kind of try to make a canon list that is not you know the side on sound or the BFI or the uh, AFI or any of those lists and one well, I'll be I'll be sure to send it to you because it is interesting. But one of the things uh, you know that I've been thinking about in terms of that list is one the just the lack of female directors in that. I mean, uh, Chantal Ackerman appears and Agnes Varda appears, and you have those names and and you know those those faces that I think are are pretty are, are kind of the go to female directors that most people who you know study and care about uh, movies know. Um, but I, I'm curious, you know, it, because it seems like with with something like the Criterion Collection in 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 place outlets like that that kind of bring to the forefront uh, a lot of the work by these by these uh, women directors, um, and that seems to be the only way that uh, people kind of. Well, let's say they're doing that recently. Um, not to you know diss. I mean, I love Criterion, <laughs> but it, it's 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 you know. I, I don't want to say late to the party, but because the party has been very male dominated, you really have to search it out and make it a priority. Right. And they've really done a beautiful job um, with that, with these, some of these new releases. Yeah. So sorry. To no, no, no. I mean, um, that's, and, and that's, and that's kind of my thing also is that it, I think that there's these, uh, and it, again, not to like, I, I like the Criterion Collection a lot, but it seems to have a lot of power as this institution that uh, brings under, you know, underappreciated or underrepresented cinema to the forefront and it, it allows people to kind of see it. And so I'm just kind of curious. I don't know really the question in this, but you know, it, it seems like that uh, that without that, without something like that kind of coming to the forefront, uh People like Agnes Varda and, and Chantel Ackerman, who I think could or, or should be in the consideration for all of these canonical directors as much as the ones that we see over and over again. I mean, is the, do you feel like that's part of the reason why they kind of get uh, get lost a little bit just be, because they, they maybe don't have the exposure? Or is it is it about the, the, the material? Is it just kind of tough for the, the general viewer to, to latch on to something like Jean Dielman or News From Home or any of her films? Well, yeah, I mean, the... I think it's a combination of a lot of those things, the accessibility of those films. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I rented this terrible print from New Yorker films of Jean Dielman that like was all scratched and it was the only 16, you know, reduction print that there was. And then they finally had to take it away because it just was in bad shape. I checked it out of the library at, in New York when they used to rent 16 millimeter films. And so <laughs> There was a there. There's a very um, influential canon of women filmmakers that have you know um, been studied, and you know I don't maybe canon isn't the right word because it was about trying to to change how we thought of 
taste and hierarchy and value, but mm-hmm. feminist film studies, you know, started in the seventies and Jean Dielman came out, um, well, all three of, I mean, all of the three features, News from Home, Jatuo, and, and Jean Dielman, that all kind of came at once. And there were these feminist critics in um, Britain, in the U.S., writing about this work immediately. Like, they were immersed in these ideas of women's language, and they were, you know, all over it. So the field that I kind of was educated in was Jean Dielman was the, you know, touchstone of all cinematic art. Um, (laughs) And it's interesting to see, you know, how long it would take for that then to become part of the list, you know, that you were referring to. And, you know, still, I think Jean Dielman is like the, uh, and now Varda probably, that is, is probably one of the only films that's anywhere near the top hundred of the, Slightly soundless. So, um, yeah. So, so, so I guess I just wanted to say that there is a lot of, um, you know, there's a deep uh, array of films by women in the studio era in various national cinemas that the field of like feminist film studies has had as its, you know, core go to reference text. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think you do have to look at them differently. I'm there. Um, the subject matter is often, you know, not particularly dynamic. Um, they're often made with less resources than, you know, some of the other auteurs had. So you don't have like production values or, you know, shot on gorgeous locations and, um, yeah, so I mean, I guess there's all those reasons why people don't know about them, and then maybe need to learn how to look at them with different uh, expectations. Mm-hmm. But I feel like plenty of people are, you know, um, with the yeah. releases. I mean, it's not just Criterion. I mean, there is just so much more film history that's accessible, and you know, and so and people like you who are finding different ways to value, um, you know, and, and trace paths through them that are going to turn a lot of people onto this work. And the seventies, some people like to look, you know, it's kind of fun to watch, look at the bell bottoms and the cars. In <laughs> There's this like very almost yeah. kind of retro chic aspect to some of the, um, 70s yeah. feminist work. Uh, on that note, and to connect it back to Zach's point about the uh, our like alt sight and sound list, um, our friend Nathan is the person who put that together. And um, last year, he started um, publishing the final list of, of what got the most votes, but also an alternative list where he removed the movies from the list that were already on the real sight and sound that were already on the IMDb Top 250. And so... On the actual list, Jean Dillman is number four, but on the alt list, on the alt list, News from Home is number three. <laughs> so like, uh, Jean Dillman is like obviously the canon pick, but News from Home is like the cool kids canon pick. If you really know your Chantal Ackerman stuff, you do. Hey, and listen, it's as you said, only ninety minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it would, and you wouldn't want it a minute shorter. It's this perfect. That's great to hear. Yeah. 
So totally random thing about news from home. Maybe before we wrap up, there's there's a dream I've had, not a literal dream, but a dream I've had since watching the, this movie the first time, which is that I would love for somebody to do make like a retrofitted 3D version of News from Home. I want to watch News from Home from 3D with 3D glasses on and I want to see the subway cars like bobbing around in the Z axis. <laughs> There's just so so much good depth of field in this There's movie. There's a lot of Z. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea. I love that idea. Um, yeah, so check out, there's a lot of good facts about the shooting of the film, like the camera and the stock, and um, they shot um, at, at night um, and pushed it in printing to kind of get this color. So all that info is in a, a nice piece um, interview with Babette Mangold in that um, on Ackerman uh, special issue of nice. Camera Obscura that I edited that came out last year. There's a, good- so, there's a pitch. There's a pitch for that. <laughs> well, yeah, we're gonna put that in the description because I think uh, just from this discussion, I, I definitely want to dig into that. Um, but yeah, news from home for for people who are wanting to check it out. It's currently uh, streaming on the Criterion Channel uh, as part of their immigrant series uh, that they have on there, and so I would recommend checking it out. If but then set aside some time to like decompress and. Uh, you know, work through emotion. I had the, I I sat there for ten minutes and then I had to turn on Futurama just to kind of like de like get <laughs> yeah. I just needed something to like you know rejoggle myself. Um, but Patricia, thank you so much for coming out and talking with us. And I hope well, hopefully we can get another uh, Ackerman film on our Young Critics series and we can bring you back to talk about her more. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. What a pleasure. I want to talk to you about other films too. <laughs> <laughs> 